Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to Red Box, the politics podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This week we're back in Westminster. The political news just keeps on coming. The Supreme Court has ruled that Parliament must have a say on triggering Article 50. Donald Trump is getting his feet under the desk in the Oval Office and all the MPs are talking about leave or remain. Not Brexit, but whether or not they should stay in Parliament while massive multi-billion pound refurbishments are carried out or should they move out to a makeshift chamber. We'll discuss all of that on this week's podcast. This week I'm joined by The Times senior political correspondent Lucy Fisher and political reporter and Brexit expert Henry Zeffman. Welcome to you both. So, uh, we've got lots to get through. Let's press on. Henry, talk us through what has happened on Brexit and whether or not any of it actually matters. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court upheld the High Court's judgment from November, saying that Theresa May requires the approval of Parliament before she can trigger Article 50, which is the formal term for beginning the two-year process of negotiating our way out of the European Union. Now, on the one hand, this is a really significant point of constitutional law, but... In political terms, it's really not that exciting. We've had Theresa May's plan for Brexit. We know already that she wants to bring the UK, in fact, out of the single market. And the Tory party is almost totally united on this issue, with only the veteran former Chancellor Ken Clark ploughing a lonely furrow saying that he will vote against triggering Article 50. As ever, it's the Labour Party that looks by far the most divided. So, Henry, the certain parts of the British media are already gearing up their enemies of the people headlines all over again. They think it's absolutely outrageous that the Supreme Court has said that MPs must vote on it. There's part of me that's struggling to get very excited about all of it. And certainly the reaction whenever I write about this particular part of Brexit in the Red Box email suggests that readers aren't particularly gripped by it either because... It doesn't really change anything materially, is that is that fair? Yeah, well, certainly a lot has changed between now and November's High Court judgment. So then we still knew very little about the government's vision for post-Brexit Britain. Theresa May was still clinging to the tautology, Brexit means Brexit. 
But a couple of weeks ago, she made what, you know, even her critics would acknowledge was a really substantial speech about Brexit at Lancaster House, where she set out in really quite a lot of detail what she wants to get out of the Brexit negotiations. So we are leaving the single market. We still want access on some preferential terms, but we are not going to be members. She said that because single market membership requires freedom of movement. And she has, I think, not unreasonably interpreted the leave victory in the referendum as at least in part a rebuke of freedom of movement. She's also said that we won't Uh, send money to the EU for its annual budget, although, mind you, that leaves open the question of whether we'll still settle a rather large divorce bill with the EU in order to buy preferential access in the future. And she's also slightly fudged the question of the customs union, saying that we're going to leave the common external tariff, but she wants frictionless trade, which is, you know, not really clear how she'll attain that. But wherever you stand on that, the point is, is that there's all sorts of meaty material from the government for the opposition to sink its teeth into now. And it looks a bit peculiar for the opposition to cling to saying, oh, well, actually, we really need to debate this before you start it, especially given that the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, and most of his party, but not all of his party, have conceded the principle that the referendum result means that Parliament actually must vote to deliver the referendum result. Lucy, one of the slightly peculiar things, that during the referendum campaign... Brexiteers said this was all about bringing power back to the British Parliament. Parliament should, you know, be sovereign. It shouldn't be these things shouldn't be decided in Brussels. Should be decided in Parliament. The Supreme Court has basically said that Parliament should decide on the big issues facing the country, and yet certain Brexiteers are absolutely furious. Yes, that's right. I mean, to be honest, I think there are compelling arguments on both sides. Uh- as you say, uh, this was supposed to be about um, handing power back to Westminster. We're a parliamentary democracy. Um, why on earth shouldn't uh, MPs and peers get a say? On the other hand, I, I can also see the point of view that, well, you know, we had the legislation that got through the Commons to bring about the referendum in the first place. Uh, the fact that the referendum was non-binding in a legal sense, many people actually see as a major mistake by David Cameron. He should have tightened that up, that, you know, if we're going to go to the effort of asking the people what they think, uh, their answer really should be legally binding. So, so I can see uh, merit in that point of view as well. One of the things that struck me, and I think we've talked about this before, is that if the Tory leadership contest had panned out differently, if it had gone over the summer last year with Andrew Leadsom and Theresa May, it seems quite likely that both leaders would have said, well, of course Parliament will have a vote on this, it, you know, to placate various parts of the party or politics generally. Or, even if that hadn't happened, Theresa May might have just moved into number 10 and called a vote quite quickly, symbolically, so to prove that she was getting on with Brexit. And if that had happened, we wouldn't be in this position we're in now, even if the vote that was held was only symbolic. But it would have shown that Parliament was at least in the driving seat. But actually, quite a lot of things that we end up talking about, you trace them back to those mad two or three days where Theresa May suddenly became Prime Minister. And that seems to be where it's traced back from. And actually, all of this is going to seem like a bit of a sideshow once we get into the meat of Brexit actually happening. Oh yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Although I think it's worth saying that um, whichever way number 10 might have gained this, I don't think it's a bad result for them. They may well have thought right from the beginning, well, we'll probably lose this, but it, it makes us look strong going for a fight. Uh, and as we've seen, as you said, the right-wing press um, in many quarters gearing up to blame the judiciary for you know, standing you know, in the way of the will of the people. I don't think it's a bad result for Theresa May. And it's one of those things, because it's been priced in, we assumed it was going to happen. She, it, she still says she's got time, she's on target to 
uh, trigger Article 50 by the end of March. Interesting at the politics, we bring back to the politics. Senior person I spoke to in the Labour Party said they thought between 60 and 80 Labour MPs wanted to vote against triggering Article 50 because they think ultimately it's going to be a disaster and they want to be able to look back in 20 years' time and say, I was there and I did the right thing. Good idea, bad idea? Well, it's always that tension of being an MP, isn't it? You know, really, this is a representative uh, democracy. They're, you know, they are represented to go out go up to Parliament, to, to London, and to vote in accordance with their own principles. So I can see that some are saying, I'm sorry, I totally reject um, the result of the country, although it's obviously not going to go down terribly well with voters, perhaps. In other areas, people kind of treat their role as more the delegate-style position. Well, sorry, my constituency voted Remain, although that's not the result that the rest of the country voted. I better represent my constituents by also um, voting against Article 50. So um, it, it, it's a difficult thing, but um, I think they're in for a tough ride, anyone who does try and block it. It's, um, it's a difficult one to argue out. I think whether an MP sees their role as, as a delegate or representative, this is a really good example of the fragility of Labour's coalition, what some people call the combination of Hampstead and Hull. You have MPs, particularly in inner city constituencies, lots of them very close to Jeremy Corbyn. In fact, Jeremy Corbyn is one of them, whose seats voted by an overwhelming margin for Remain. But you also have Labour MPs who themselves supported Remain, but couldn't persuade their constituencies, predominantly in the Midlands and the North West, that Remain was right. It's a very difficult coalition to understand how, how a competent Labour leader could bridge it, but uh, <laughs> I think it's, it's certainly clear at this point that, that Jeremy Corbyn isn't the man with the plan to do that. The, I mean, the simple thing for him to do is to say, we are a democracy, there has been a referendum, I don't like it, but we have to go along with it. And it, it, that's what happened in, on June the 23rd. Uh, David Davis in his statement in the House when he was setting out a bit of the timetable said there can be no turning back. The page was turned on June the 23rd. I just, I just think it is incredibly difficult for a party positioning itself as, a, in theory, an alternative government for the official opposition to appear to be trying to ignore the will of the people, which is ultimately what a democracy is all about. And to be fair to Jeremy Corbyn, he has said a version of that. It's just in, in typical fashion, uh, it's a he bit complicated. Lots of, lots of things. Um, he has said that, that, that he doesn't want Labour to block Article 50. In fact, you know, plenty of, of Labour MPs suspect that he's not too displeased with the referendum result at all, being of the sort of old socialist uh, view that the EU is a capitalist racket. But that position needs, it needs to be more forcefully put and Labour MPs need to have more confidence that Jeremy Corbyn has a vision for what happens after Article 50. Lucy? I think I am have, have a slightly more um, strident view on this, which is that he just needs to decide either way. <laughs> the, the idea that, you know, he says, well, you know, I'm going to be strong on this. Three-line whip. Oh, no, hang on. I'm, I'm simply going to ask my MPs, you know, you know, going to tell them what to do. Um, the weakness there is just absolutely uh, astonishing. Um, it's because, but the amazing thing is, you, ju you just feel like, and you watching PMQs when he tries to tackle Theresa May on, you know, where is your plan? And she says, well, I've just given the most substantial speech a Prime Minister's given in years and years and years. It just feels like he, he actually doesn't really get Brexit. He doesn't really have a position of his own, apart from assuming that Theresa's is wrong. I think that's right. And, and, and the sort of bits we know about his kind of thinking, at least in the past, that we, that we can kind of hang on to, is so out of kilter with the general public. You know, mm. from what I can ascertain, you know, really, he has been f very much pro-freedom of movement and against free trade, the absolute inverse of the rest of the oh, population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure this is someone we'll come back to. Henry, if listeners want more than just a red box email and they also want a weekly Brexit briefing, say on a Thursday lunchtime, 
they can sign up. You and Ollie might do it every Thursday lunchtime. How can they get it? Well, if you're already wise enough to be a Times subscriber, all you need to do is go onto the website, go to the My Subscriptions page, and tick the box next to Brexit Briefing. That means every Thursday, round about lunchtime, depending on how organised I've been, you get a lovely dose of Brexit news in your inbox. If you haven't, for some reason, got a Times subscription, you can still get registered access, which means you can get two articles a week, free of charge, and you can get the Brexit email uh, and, and lots of other emails. I've heard there's a really good one called Redbox, but, but specifically Redbox. the Brexit one. You can get Redbox anyway. Uh, Lucy, let's move on and let's talk about the building that we're in and the Houses of Parliament. Cynics grumble about moral decay in Parliament, but spare a thought for the physical decrepitude of the place. The walls are crumbling, rodents scuttle about, damp and asbestos abound, and sewage has been known to burst forth from pipes into offices. The battle now rages over whether to raise it to the ground and start again elsewhere, patch up the estate to serve as a museum, or restore it so it remains the heart of our democracy. Most MPs favour the latter, but it will cost. While the push to repair Parliament is likely to win out, will it further damage voter confidence in parliamentarians? So this is a sort of rumbling row which is burbling away in the background, almost mm-hmm. unseen uh, to the public, because Brexit is obviously dominating. But the, the, the big plan, as put forward by a joint committee, is that £3.5 billion pounds will be spent refurbishing the old Houses of Parliament, but MPs and peers move out yep. for five to six years. The problem is lots of MPs don't want to move out, and they've cooked up their own plan. Uh, two Tory MPs, Edward Lee and Charlotte Vara, they've cooked up their own plan, which would see the MPs move to the Lords, the Lords move to the Peers Royal Gallery, which is just nearby, and so the work can be sort of carried out around them. The problem with that is that the rewiring and sewage works and whatever else needs to be done will take much, much longer pushing up the price. But they worry that if they don't move out, they'll know if they move out completely, they'll never come back. Interesting, we had a Times poll uh, by YouGov this week, which showed that a quarter of people think that Parliament should either be abandoned, demolished, or <laughs> sold off. And interestingly, which I thought was interesting. Almost a third of UKIP voters backed the idea of a parliament being demolished or sold off. And it, I wonder whether it sort of slightly plays into this idea of Westminster, the detachment from politics and the way that politics has been done and, you know, the way that Brexit is being overanalyzed and all of that as well, that maybe we do need a clean break and move parliament to Birmingham. You're right. There's no surprise in some way that it's, um, to my mind, that it's UKIP voters who are most likely to want parliament torn down. Uh, I mean, the amazing sort of gothic revivalism, Charles Barry building and the sort of medieval Westminster Hall are just such grand, uh, iconic buildings. And it, and it plays in entirely into that narrative that, oh, it's, you know, elites who, you know, live in the centre of London who are lording it up with their free bars, you know, subsidised food, all the rest of it. So I think that is uh, an image that needs to be challenged. And I worry that if MPs push to stay here, and, and one of the most expensive options um, that's been set forth is a £6 billion plan that would take 32 years that would allow neither MPs or um, peers would allow them not to, to move out I think that will go down really really badly with the public. Henry we shouldn't underestimate or play down quite what a mess the building is in. For tourists who might come and look at it from outside it's all looks okay so maybe some of the gargoyles could do with a facelift but, but it, you know bits of it are crumbly but on the inside uh, there's there's damp walls and ceilings. Lucy was talking about there's a particular set of toilets which has a habit of emptying into the offices of MPs you look around the place, uh, the, the wiring that, that needs completely redoing, the place is riddled with asbestos. Um, the work does need doing. There doesn't seem a lot of doubt about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, the Times HQ, for example, is a sort of greenhouse underneath Big Ben. 
which as uh, <laughs> you're Philip... making it sound nice and it is. It's a port. It's a it's a port. <laughs> it's a sort of temporary classroom which has been dumped on the roof of a building. What what's weirdest about it is that it's actually actually existed for quite a long time. So in uh, Philip Webster's excellent book Inside Story, uh, his account of of uh, I think forty years covering politics for the Times, he talks about how it used to be the TV lounge when television was a new thing, just showing that the, the Times has always been at the centre of the the cutting edge. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, there's loads of work needs doing. I mean, the three of us are all certain to die early of asbestos poisoning. We're currently sat in a sort of padded room under a spiral staircase dungeon, which doesn't really fit all of us, and I'm sat on a metal box. Uh, the other two have been dignified with chairs <laughs> due to their more elevated <laughs> status. Seniority, seniority. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But, um, but, but even, even just to get here, coming down through the various corridors to get here, you can see that this is a building... Well, well I, I've, I've worked in, in Parliament for, for just over a year, and I sort of I have two routes that I know to get to places I, 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 uh, I need to be, but uh, if I take a wrong turning or, or you know, I'm feeling Feeling, feeling devilish and decide to do one and test myself, I'm instantly lost. Um, but not just lost down another palatial corridor, but lost in some sort of narrow, cramped, leaky... Leaky... <laughs> <laughs> dead end. Pathway. <laughs> Verbal and physical dead end. Uh, so, uh, yes, I mean, I, I tend to take a more fundamentalist view, which is, which is that Parliament absolutely should move out. Um, I don't think they should sell it off, obviously, because this is an icon. Parliament should move, move out permanently. Okay. Um, I don't think there is. I think the idea of a Westminster bubble is certainly overstated, and I assume the UKIP voters who want it demolished want it demolished with the MPs inside. <laughs> but you know, MPs do know what what people are thinking in the country through their constituency work, which they do far more assiduously than they did in sort of thirty, forty years ago in the, in the supposed golden age. Uh, you know, Winston Churchill represented all sorts of constituencies that he never visited. But there is certainly a sort of uh, cultural institutional imbalance in this country where everything cultural, political, financial happens in London. In, in lots of other countries, although by no means all, you have the cultural centre in one city, the financial centre in another city and the political centre in another city. And I think it's quite important, particularly in, in quite a geographically small country, to spread that around. Yeah. Well, you can be the one to try and tell MPs that they should um, move to Birmingham. Oh, I'm not moving. But was it Bir- <laughs> Birmingham Library, Manchester Town Hall? Where would where would you um, base Parliament then if you'd uh, move it out to the regions? I think there's a strong case actually for rotating it. I mean, there are lots oh, of. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> uh, far be it from me to suggest that the EU's Strasbourg, Brussels, Duopoly is 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 a good idea. I do think there is something in you know it is a great. I mean, there are all sorts of of defunct or near derelict. Georgian or Victorian town halls around the country and I think it would make a great site for for Brits in different regions to have Theresa May batting away Jeremy Corbyn's ferocious Prime Minister's questions in, oh, for in those cities. Oh, you can't even travelling roadshow. You can't even fill the press gallery and the public gallery for PMQs in London. It's, su- it's now such a non-event, <laughs> see Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May going out. We should also just briefly touch on the mice. The place is absolutely riddled with mice. You're quite often you can be sitting in one of the canteens or dining rooms and see a mice uh, mouse uh, running through. I remember once, this, uh, a few years ago, being in the press canteen and as i went to sit down i felt something under my foot and looked down to see a mouse that sadly was no longer fully operational (laughs) lying on its back with its feet in his hair and i went over to the um lady on the till and just tried very very discreetly to say i think i think there's a mouse there's a mouse over there on the floor and she sort of screamed a mouse a mouse (laughs) disappeared off and picked up a dustpan and brush 
flipped the mouse into the dustpan and brush and then disappeared into the kitchen with it. Well, as I'm sure it later re-emerged as one of the um, better bits in the salad bar. Uh, but so that it, it was just one of the things that they just... It, see, uh, uh, mice being seen around is not, not seen as a big deal. I, I, think, I think as well as mice, I mean, for me, it's more the insects. Uh, mm. Just any windowsill you pass, you sort of look more closely and there's a sort of a crust developed of sort of long deceased uh, vertebrate sort of <laughs> protein we're making it sa- it, is, it is it is a real honor to work in such an amazing building but it is it is at, at times it's at the outer limits of actually being a, a viable workplace it is and i think that's why nobody disagrees that the repairs need to be done you know in, unless you think it needs to be bulldozed the argument it should be made into a museum or you know people need to move out or stay here it's a huge risk of a fire. I mean, that's that's the premier threat to the future of the building. And of course, historically, when Parliament was sitting in the mid nineteenth century, mm-hmm. there was concern that the chamber was too small. That people who wanted to get in ended up climbing up on ladders to try mm-hmm. and be uh, heard and seen in the chamber. And they kept saying, "We need to do something about this. We need a bigger chamber." And they put it off and put it off and put it off. And then eventually, a fire broke out, and that was that was what destroyed Parliament. And so we, we've got the building uh, we've got today. Henry. There is just one sort of fairly serious point uh, about Britain and public procurement projects. I mean, even this project, which has been, uh, you know, instigated by a joint committee of MPs from both sides, it's only taken a couple of Tory MPs who've recently been sacked as ministers and have a bit of time on their hands (laughs) to find all sorts of holes in the plans in any of the options put forward to MPs for the decant. And and that's kind of concerning. I mean, the, the costs are going to spiral. If they can't, if Parliament can't find a way of getting a handle on the project, I mean, there's there's certainly a sense among some MPs that a few of the denizens uh, appointed to the committee are sort of slightly getting above themselves and talking about redesigning Parliament and knocking down buildings rather than just confining themselves to sorting out the cabling and sorting out the mice. It's that dreaded thing of when they start talking about you know making it fit for the 21st century, and you can picture plasma screens and glass doors, and that's uh, that's definitely not. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. What we want. Uh, before we go, um, we should just obviously touch on Donald Trump. While Henry and I uh, had to make do with merely watching it all on the TV, Lucy, you were in Washington uh, at the end of last week. I was indeed. Talk us through it. What was it, what was the sense that you got? There's also been a lot of debate about the level of enthusiasm for mm. Donald Trump, and you know how many people were there compared to Barack Obama. What what yeah. was your what was your sense of when you were in Washington? Well, I wasn't there in uh, 2009 or 2013 at, at uh, either Obama's inaugurations. But but what I can say uh, is um, I was there throughout last week, and Washington was packed on the Saturday. Um, you know, but on the day of the inauguration, Friday, and the day of the Women's March on Saturday, I was wandering around, I was using the metro, and um, it was palpable, visible, 
masses of queues um, to use public transport, bars, restaurants, overspilling on Saturday, uh, and actually businesses used it as usual on the Friday. So it certainly wasn't. So it felt as busier popular. on the Saturday when there was the oh, absolutely. women's march. Yeah, yeah. Vastly uh, more now, so. what I, what, one thing I was struck by was the Sean Spicer, who's the new White House press, press secretary, secretary, who yeah. gave his first press briefing <laughs> where he took no questions. But launched this t- just extraordinary attack on the media and their reporting of this. Is I don't know why they didn't just play the cards of just saying Donald Trump's supporters are not residents of the Washington bubble. They are people spread across America who've got jobs, and that's why they don't turn up to things in the rain on a Friday and t- sort of try and try and turn the lack Style of turnout into yeah. a plus point. Whereas instead, he's so obsessed. It just feels like Donald Trump was so obsessed with appearance and media and Twitter and Status instant reaction and, and state and, and winning yeah. and all of that. It felt like Sean Spicer was given one of those briefings, which I think other former spin doctors have said they recognised. That, that came from the top. You go out there and you, you read out this message of defiance and he, he just had to do it. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's probably the case. I think it's probably uh, unfortunate, I'm, I'm sad, sorry to say, quite a canny move. I mean, we live in times where the media faces problems of public trust and to start bashing them and to make it all, to question the integrity of reporters, you know, who had photographic evidence. I mean, in many ways, it's unbelievable that he, he'd even kind of go there when, when it's sort of plain for all to see when you put the photos next to each other. It, it's quite a clever move. It keeps people sort of talking about other subjects rather than, you know, what Donald Trump, Trump is up to and why perhaps his, his inauguration was not so well attended. The only, th- the only thing about that is that at some point as president, he will need to tell the American people something. It might be in the wake of a terror he attack. He doesn't or... think that he needs to do that through the traditional press. No, That's but why he, will he need uses to be, Twitter. He will need to be believed when he's delivering, whether it's a, a tough message on the economy or on terrorism. And if, up in, if by that point his, nobody trusts what is coming out of the White House, when they are literally arguing black as white... Does but that not become a problem? I think it's an interesting question. I'm not sure um, there's a great level of mistrust among his supporters. I mean, that was the interesting thing about his inaugural address, wasn't it? Unlike virtually all his forebears, he didn't sort of appeal to unity uh, and, and mark himself out as a man who was going to sort of govern for everyone. It was a direct speech to his supporters. Um, I think they probably believe what he says, and, and I think that's probably all he cares about. It's going to be an interesting time. And you were at the bad boys of Brexit Trump I was indeed. party with Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks and the, the characters who, who have done a very good job in America in particular of claiming credit for Brexit, even though during the actual campaign they weren't quite so visible. What, what sort of mood were they in? Oh, they were in a brilliant form uh, and uh, as well they might be. Donald Trump gave Nigel Farage an absolute gift by branding him Mr Brexit last summer when Nigel Farage travelled out to Mississippi to join Donald Trump on the campaign trail. He was one of the few foreign politicians to publicly back the Donald while he was still a candidate and he's reaped the rewards since um, Donald Trump won the election in November. Not only were they there in this fabulous five-star hotel with this sort of penthouse floor looking down on the White House across Lafayette Square with lots of kind of bigwigs from the world of American politics, including the Mississippi governor, who's become their key link to the Trump uh, administration and transition team. You know, they'd already been talking earlier the day of the party about a new six-part drama with HBO, (laughs) you know, 
Brexit bad boys. Oh, the, so we'd have to you know, relive it all over again. Absolutely. So, you know, they've, they've got this big TV show possibly coming out. Nigel Farage has been signed by Fox News as a major contributor. Um, things are looking up there. I mean, the big question was whether Donald Trump would show up to the party. Well, that's In the it. event, The he biggest didn't. of Whigs did not turn up. He did not. No. Um, so they've still got some way to go. But um, I think they left DC at the weekend pretty chuffed with what they had achieved. And just to go full circle, Henry, right back uh, to Brexit again. This week, Theresa May goes to Washington, the first world leader to meet Donald Trump in the White House, which is a bit of a coup. She is obviously hoping to cash in his promise of Britain being at the front of the queue, although his inaugural address, talking about America first, suggests that that we might be in that queue for quite some time. And there is there are big questions about what sort of trade deal we might actually be able to do with America. As sort of grand as all the rhetoric on both sides is about signing up a, a, up to a great US-UK free trade deal, there's there's all sorts of practical obstacles one, before you even, even get to the issue of, of what we might do. I mean, first off, Britain can't negotiate free trade deals until the day after we've left the EU. It's a bit like a game of grandma's footsteps at the moment. No one's quite sure, as no one's left the EU before. No one's quite sure how much we can get away with. So there's certainly a sense what's, that British sorry. ministers are... Just to, what is grandma's footsteps? Have you, did you never play that game in the playground? No, there's not room in this tiny room for us to... Uh... So you walk and you walk and you walk. I, I can't quite remember, but the analogy well, definitely t- works. Turns and then grandma it. turns around oh, and goes, yeah, yeah, oh, I'm going to yeah, eat okay. you or something. I know, I Maybe think it was called something else. Big bad wolf. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's d- yeah. Diff- different in Devon. Brexit Britain in, in, in exemplified. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, to return to the serious point about trade, we can't do it until we've left. And, you know, two years down the line, America's had midterm elections. Perhaps you've got a Democratic House which would refuse Donald Trump a trade deal. You know, and it's only two years off from the possibility of a new president. So that's quite a big obstacle. I've, I, I understand that British uh, ministers are trying to sort of suppress expectations on the American side that this can be done before we're out. Then on top of that, there's various other rules. So, for example, Britain can't do a sweetheart deal with America unless it's totally comprehensive. But that involves, for example, having totally free trade in things like agriculture. Now, the problem with agriculture is not just tariffs, so import taxes, but it's also regulations. We have very different regulations to america so america washes its chickens in chlorine they inject their beef with hormones and they produce gm crops now theresa may part of her image shopping in maidenhead waitrose on a saturday well we can't can't even eat roast potatoes in this country anymore (laughs) apparently they're so deadly yeah exactly (laughs) well it'd be really interesting to see how it plays out and you know and if donald trump dares to call theresa may my maggie to her face because she absolutely hates the uh the comparisons with margaret thatcher it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out as ever do subscribe to the podcast on iTunes where you can also leave a review. You can sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox email. But for now, from Lucy, Henry and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.